Thank you, Sarah. Wow, so great. It's an honor to be able to open the scriptures with you guys this morning. So let's do just that. Grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are some stewards to hand who will, if you put your hand in the, in the air, they'll, they'll get a Bible to you. Um, if you've got a church Bible, open to page 509, and we're reading from the book of Job. Page 509, book of Job. We'll start from chapter 1, right from verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Before we go any further, let me pray. I think that, that new song that Matt led us in this morning beautifully framed our prayer as we start. Lord God, we ask by your Spirit to soften our hearts, open our eyes, help us to see that you are shaping us more and more. You're shaping our lives into the likeness of Christ. Give us faith this morning to trust what you say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. I'm going to get rid of this. So, the book of Job. It's the account of a devout man who lived thousands of years ago. According to biblical scholars, the book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. The author remains unknown, and so the date of its writing is still hotly debated among scholars. Some think it was written before the days of Moses, 1500 B.C., Others put it at the time of Solomon, around, six, around 900 B.C. Nonetheless, it's a gripping drama of riches to rags to riches, a theological treatise about suffering, divine sovereignty, and faith that endures. Job was a very prosperous man. He had it all, a large family, wealth, blessings overflowing. At the time, Job may have actually been the richest man on the face of the earth. Uh, we just read uh, his riches described to us. He had 10 children, he owned thousands of sheep, thousands of camels, hundreds of oxen and donkeys, numerous servants. It says that he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Clearly, Job had it all. But tragedy hovers over this righteous man. Just a few lines down the page, you will notice that Job loses 
everything. Children, property, wealth, his good reputation, and even his health. Scene one invites us behind this heavenly curtain into the universe ruling throne room of God, and this drama begins to unfold. Angelic beings coming to God and reporting their activities, and there Satan is among them too. The evil one has been roaming the earth, surveying his domain. So, Satan, we're not going to give him too much airtime this morning. But his name in Hebrew, Satan, means adversary or enemy. He's referred to as the tempter when he approaches Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. He's also called the devil, which is derived from the Greek term meaning slanderer or accuser. He's presented in the Bible as a real being. And here in the Chronicles of Job, the slanderous accuser is doing some of his best work. Job's troubles begin after God presents him to Satan as an example of virtue and worship. Have you considered my servant Job? God asks Satan, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan, later on, between verses 9 and 22, I'll paraphrase, totally rejects God's um, view of Job's good character. He implies that Job is simply selfish in his motives, a cynical reason for obeying and trusting God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan asks, insinuating that Job is simply in it for what he can get. He's nothing but a fair-weather worshipper. Satan insists, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he, everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. Job doesn't love you, Satan implies. Take away Job's many blessings and you'll find that actually he is no friend of yours. Stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. Really, does Job love God only for selfish reasons? And then comes God's reply. Well, let's see, he tells Satan. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself you will not lay a finger. With God's permission, Satan grabs a handful of tricks from his bottomless bag of suffering and flings them at Job. And with that, the world begins to cave in around this innocent man. Job's herds, his property are either carried off by raiders or destroyed in natural disasters. All of his children perish. But here is the astonishing thing. Despite Satan's best efforts to crush Job under despair, Satan is proven wrong. After these terrible tragedies strike Job, this happens. Check this out. Read with me from verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And so the title of the talk today, Courageous Worship. The, the author of the book of Job is careful to point out in the following verse, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Remarkable. Remarkable that Job would answer adversity with adoration, that he would reply to woe 
with worship, unlike so many people who would give in to bitterness, who would begin to blame God for wrongdoing. Job didn't do those things. It's amazing. Now, most sermons that I've heard on the book of Job are sermons on suffering. Uh, but today, I'm wanting to focus our attention on Job's life before all the affliction and woe came upon him, before his trials. Today, I want us to consider what God asked Satan to consider, his servant, Job. What can we learn from a man who, when his life was violently shaken and all was lost, he responded with worship? There are four character traits that God mentions in verse 8. So I thought we could take a slightly closer look at these. First one, Job was blameless. Some translate this word as perfect. Not that this word means what we generally take it to mean today. Um, for instance, when Melanie, my beautiful wife, met me eight years ago, she thought I was perfect. <laughs> Understandably so. Oh, how love can blind someone. And marriage proved a marvelous cure for her visual impediment. <laughs> and she, she still loves me, which is amazing. Job was a perfect man in a different sense. He wasn't sinless because, after all, he inherited the same nature that, that you and I inherited from Adam. The word perfect here in the Bible means complete. Job was spiritually mature, not lacking in any, in any moral area. I like the way James describes a perfect man in James 3. He writes, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. In other words, if you can control your mouth, you have complete control over the rest of your body. I definitely am not perfect. Job was such a man, self-controlled, a man of great integrity. He was known as a very good man. When, when someone came to him uh, with a need or Job saw a need himself, he didn't walk the other way and ignore it uh, the way we heard this, uh, the priest did or the Levite did in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. He went out of his way to help. Job considered it his duty to help the helpless. He says in chapter 31, If I have denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow weary if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless. But from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow. Remarkable man. He saved the poor who were crying for relief. He gave liberally to them. He didn't just meet their immediate need, but fulfilled their desires. He rescued orphans. It says in Job that he became like a father to them. His table, the seats around his table were filled with orphans. He clothed the naked not just with rags but with fleece from his own sheep. It says elsewhere that Job brought joy to widows. He helped the blind and the lame. He wept for the poor, opened the door to the stranger, discipled many, strengthened the weak, encouraged the fearful. He acted as a public defender upholding justice, even for foreigners. So it's obvious why Job was honored by his contemporaries. And why God also said what he said about Job. Without having the command, Job loved his neighbor as himself. He gave his best. His life didn't resolve around himself or his own possessions. On the contrary, God repeatedly called Job his servant because he had a servant's attitude 
towards others and a steward's attitude towards his own possessions. He knew that all that he had was a blessing from God and that he was to use that to help the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the orphan. This was Job's everyday worship. Secondly, Job was upright or righteous. The word means straight or correct, living in the way that God initially intended for mankind to live. Uh, In Jerusalem, today there's a memorial to Jewish victims of the Holocaust, and it's called Yad Vashem. And a part of this memorial, thousands of carob trees have been planted in this garden that's called the Garden of the Righteous. Each tree planted is in memory of a non-Jew who helped to save the lives of Jews during World War II. So far, 22,000 non-Jews have been officially recognized by the State of Israel as righteous Gentiles, including Queen Elizabeth of the Belgians, Oscar and Emily Schindler, and of course, Corrie ten Boom. Amazing honor. These people have been declared righteous by the Israeli government. But who was honored infinitely more than this was Job, who was righteous in the eyes of God. Imagine that. While blameless relates much to Job's reputation among his peers, righteous is more about how God saw him. Job did what pleased God, not just what his culture thought was the right thing to do. And what is remarkable is that Job himself was a Gentile. Job wasn't one of God's chosen people. Job didn't have the law. The Ten Commandments hadn't been handed down yet. But still, Job knew how God wanted him to live, and he strived and pursued that. He even guarded his own mind against sinful desires. Again, he says in chapter 31, If I walked with falsehood, or my foot had hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales, and know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. Job wasn't sinless. He recognized that no one is without sin. But Job, to his best efforts, did what was right in God's eyes. He even avoided deep-rooted heart sins like greed and vengefulness, envy, in the pursuit of pleasing God. This was Job's everyday worship. Thirdly, he feared God. Job's reasons for living blamelessly and righteously all focus around a healthy awe and reverence for God. Now, the fear of God in the Bible usually is defined as reverence or awe. Job honored God. He lived in such a way that showed respect for for what God likes and for what God dislikes. But for Job, this was due, at least partially, we read, to the fact that he actually literally was afraid of God. He didn't want to displease God in some way. Job was constantly aware that God's eyes were on him. It says in Job 31, 3 and 4, Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? We might ask, well, why would Job be afraid of God if he knew God's favor uh, and enjoyed God's blessing, if he was seen as blameless and righteous in the eyes of God? What did he have to be afraid of? Job knew that God is righteous, is just, and holy. 
And he knew that if he chose to sin against God, all his past good, all his past good decisions, all his past generosity would not be enough to shield him from God's wrath. God is holy. Job wasn't alone in this understanding of God's character. Um, Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife tries to tempt Joseph to sleep with her, Joseph didn't respond, oh, what if someone finds out, or oh, that goes against my beliefs. No, what drove Joseph was this, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? David, the same, David, this man after God's own heart, the psalmist wrote, my flesh trembles for fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. Now, as a follower of Jesus, I have no reason to fear God's wrath. That's the good news. What Jesus achieved for me on the cross shields me from that. But unfortunately, it tends to sometimes bring out the spoiled brat in me. It tends to make me take, take God's grace, his mercy, his holiness for granted. That's never a good thing. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see that when people take God's mercy and grace for granted, sometimes he'll do something to shake them out of their complacency. We need to take a leaf out of Job's book, if you'll mind the awful pun. He didn't take God for granted. He understood that God was holy, and that filled him with a very hearty awe of God. This was Job's everyday worship. And then fourth, Job turned away from or shunned evil. This last description of Job's character means that Job took great care to avoid sin. He resisted temptation. It was difficult to sway Job into doing wrong things, sinful things. Um, in their book, The Day That America Told the Truth, James Patterson and Peter Kim tells us the results of a poll uh, of what Americans would do for $10 million. Now, I'm not singling out Americans. Americans, rest assured. I'm pretty sure what I'm about to say would be mirrored in any modern Western society. But out of a poll taken from 5,000-plus random people, this is what people would be willing to do for $10 million. 3% of them would be willing to put their children up for adoption. Can you believe it? 7% would kill a stranger. 10% would withhold testimony and allow a murderer to go free. 16% would leave their spouses. Melanie, don't worry. You're safe. I'll do it for 11. 16% would give up their American citizenships. Isn't that extraordinary? Although in the day of Donald and Hillary, I think a lot more Americans would do that for free. 25% would abandon their church for $10 million. Now, this book was published in 1991, and I'm pretty sure if this book was published yesterday, the numbers wouldn't have improved very much at all. Personal integrity is getting to be a very rare commodity in this world. For Job, in spite of God's hedge of protection around him from Satan's attacks, he was still tempted to sin, just as we all are. But Job resisted that temptation. He refused to act, speak, or even think sinfully. He acted with, uh, in accordance with Paul's command, we read in 1 Thessalonians, reject every kind of evil. 
again, the fear of God plays into this, not just um, was this an idea that you know, living this way would lead to a better life. Job feared God. As we all know, avoiding sin is hard, especially in areas where we are weak. And I'm sure Job had his weak areas too, but he kept them under control. He was the kind of person that kept his word even when it hurt. He abhorred what is evil, it says in Job, and held fast to what is good. This was Job's everyday worship. You see, Job lived to please God. His everyday life was one elaborate act of worship. Satan was proven spectacularly wrong. Job's worship had no selfish motive. His devotion to God had no strings attached. He understood that every good thing that he had came from God, and should all of those things be stripped away, God was still worthy of his devotion. Essentially, what Job has taught us is that it is possible to love God unconditionally. But the book of Job also screams of God's unconditional love for us. Remember what God said to the accuser in verse 8? Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Well, there'd be another conversation between God and the accuser at a later time, only this time it would read differently. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my son, Jesus? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who is God and will defeat evil. The Son of God suffered more than I can wrap my human mind around. He was beaten, bloodied, humiliated, scorned, crucified, and killed. Yes, Job was a righteous man, but he was ultimately just a sinner like you and I, not Jesus. He never sinned, not once. He truly was perfect. It says in 1 Peter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. Amazing. And he set a seal on that promise by rising from the dead, offering us new birth into a living hope, it says in 1 Peter. So what can we take away from this today? I think the challenge to Christians uh, is a pretty obvious one. Will we be courageous whole-life worshippers, like Job was? Will you have a servant attitude towards people? And will you be a good student, uh, steward sorry, of what God has given you? Will you always consider God in all your decision-making and strive to do what is right in His eyes? Will you live with integrity? Will you choose daily to reject what is wrong and hold fast to what is good? You see, we live in the shadow of the cross, Romans 12, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's our challenge. And secondly, if you're here today and the idea of having a personal relationship with God 
that's a foreign idea to you, I'd encourage you, look into it. Through Jesus, you can know God. You can have a close friendship with him. And you won't have to go through this life on your own. I love the way it's put in the Message Bible, Ephesians 2. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own, with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in the company of Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us exactly where he wants us, with all the time in this life and the next, to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all God's idea, and it's all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. God loves us unconditionally, and my prayer for us is that our lives would be a response of unconditional love and unconditional worship. Amen. Thank you, Sarah.